0: Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. If you have not signed up for my newsletter yet, please do so. You can go on over to chrisrawl.com, hit the subscribe button. I will deliver you a free newsletter every Wednesday. The most recent one was written about Justin Herbert, who's now my favorite player to watch in the NFL outside of Aaron Rodgers. I think he is incredible and I'm very excited to watch his career unfold because we are only somehow three years into this I can't call him generational because he's alongside Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes, who are also both generational quarterbacks, which would make no sense because there are three people within the same generation. However, I'm incredibly excited to watch all three of those players flourish and watch their careers grow. So go and sign up for that and let us move on to today's show where I talk about the retirement of Roger Federer, the coaching search of Nebraska football, and kind of the emotions that are threaded into watching an individual athlete and following an individual team. Now, close your eyes and sleep. 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 I love sports. That is what this show is about. And I'm kind of odd by the ways sports can create a shared experience between millions of people all over the earth. Very different different walks of life, different things going on day to day. And there's just something about the world of sports, whether you are playing or watching or gambling or whatever it may be, that has a way of kind of being this anchor uh, and connective tissue amongst a lot of different people that again, are very different in a wide variety of ways. It's a really cool aspect. you know. I, I talk about that a lot because it's just a big part of my life. Uh, the shared experience of watching all the athletes and teams that I do, the shared experience of playing golf in my own life a lot with people competitively, uh, those are things that have brought me an immense amount of joy and meaning. So I was going to record this show about Nebraska's Coaching Search, and I still am going to talk about that, but I have another subject that I want to kind of shoehorn into the conversation because I think they actually go well together and I think they're both worthy of thinking about in conjunction with one another. The One of the greatest players in the history of tennis, maybe the greatest, I don't know, you'd have to ask a more tennis person than I, uh, that's a sport that I used to watch a lot in my youth and I haven't watched extensively for probably 15 years. I was way into it back in high school and right out of high school when I was playing it. And Roger Federer was the one who was just the kingpin at the time. So that's obviously who I connect most in my mind with tennis. And as I was getting show notes prepared for today, Roger Federer's retirement just suddenly pops out of the blue. He writes this kind of incredible letter announcing his retirement. And so I read through it and I was like, "Ah, this is Awesome. Then it made me want to reread the David Foster Wallace New York Times article that he wrote a long time ago. David Foster Wallace, great author, wrote a bunch of books and loved watching Roger Finner play tennis. David Foster Wallace, also a person who played tennis competitively growing up. So We wrote this kind of love letter essay about just, oh, this is sweet watching this dude ball the hell out because he's the best and I like watching good tennis and this guy kind of combines both those things together. So I'm reading that and then I'm just thinking about... The way sports can be that connective tissue, the way that we can measure time and joy through sports. And I was just kind of like, huh, this is really cool. And actually, this is where I want to start the show, because I think it's a really good. Not even a segue, uh, connective tissue is probably a good term for this as well. Just I think it's a really good connection point between my love for Nebraska football and what is going on with that. And the opportunity that following a team can offer in a way that following an individual athlete cannot. So I actually want to read some of that letter. I'm not reading the whole thing, but there's a lot of it that resonated with me that I think is really cool and echoes sentiments that you as a listener know. I preach constantly on the show, just this kind of sense of awe and maybe a little bit of being overwhelmed. Just like, I can't believe this thing has been such an integral part of my life and brought me this much. And uh, so... Let's go to, this is just Roger Federer. This is his words uh, about announcing his retirement. Again, this is not the full letter. If you want to go and read that, it's on his Twitter feed, but I'm just going to pick and choose some of the stuff that I really think is uh, cool for me. So here we go. Of all the gifts that tennis has given me over the years, the greatest, without a doubt, has been the people I've met along the way. My friends, my competitors, and most of all, the fans who give this sport its life. Today, I want to share some news with all of you. As many of you know, the past three years have presented me with challenges in the form of injuries and surgeries. I've worked hard to return to full competitive form. But I also know my body's capacities and limits. And its message to me lately has been clear. I'm 41 years old. I've played more than 1,500 matches over 24 years. Tennis has treated me more generously than I ever would have dreamt. And now I must recognize when it is time to end my competitive career. He continues. This is a bittersweet decision because I will miss everything the tour has given me. But at the same time, there is so much to celebrate. I consider myself one of the most fortunate people on earth. I was given a special talent to play tennis, and I did it at a level that I never imagined for much longer than I ever thought possible. He continues. Above all, I must offer a special thank you to my unbelievable fans. You will never know how much strength and belief you have given me. The inspiring feeling of walking into full stadiums and arenas has been one of the huge thrills in my life. Without you, those successes would have felt lonely rather than filled with joy and energy. The last 24 years on tour have been an incredible adventure. While it sometimes feels like it went by in 24 hours, it has also been so deep and magical that it seems as if I've already lived a full lifetime. I have had the immense fortune to play in front of you in over 40 different countries. I have laughed and cried, felt joy and pain, and most of all, I have felt incredibly alive. Through my travels, I have met many wonderful people who will remain friends for life, who consistently took time out of their busy schedules to come watch me play and cheer me on around the globe. Thank you. When my love of tennis started, I was a ball kid in my hometown of Basel. I used to watch the players with a sense of wonder. They were like giants to me, and I began to dream. My dreams led me to work harder, and I started to believe in myself. Some success brought me confidence, and I was on my way to the most amazing journey that has led to this day. So I want to thank you all from the bottom of my heart, to everyone around the world who has helped make the dreams of a young Swiss ball kid come true, finally to the game of tennis. I love you, and will never leave you lot of awesome stuff in there. Just the talking about the way that the human body deteriorates something that all of us experience as we grow older and just the inevitability of that. That's one of the things that following an individual athlete, I think really hammers home is you get older and you watch people who you grew up watching from the very start. Roger Federer would be one of those people, even though I stopped watching tennis, but I've talked a lot about tracking athletes and their careers, and now getting to the point where me as a 36-year-old, I've been alive long enough to watch full career arcs, and watching full career arcs, and it's kind of this surreal feeling of like, oh, yeah, I've seen every meaningful moment of that person's career, and then I watch them age, and there comes a point when you can't continue in the professional realm of sports because These are the very best athletes in the world. And you just cannot be that the older you get. You can't hold a candle to what 22-year-olds and 26-year-olds are going to offer up. Especially once surgeries and and all those kinds of things inevitably start taking a toll on you. The the talking about just that shared community and just walking into stadiums and the great thrill and the way that it turns something that could be a lonely endeavor into this just connection point that is incredible i loved love 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 because in this case i'm on the opposite side i'm one of the millions of people who are watching and yet at the same time you're able to a experience that athlete's arc through watching but b as he talks about just seeing things and having that give him strength and hope to be better in his own life in whatever capacity for him it was tennis that's something that that works uh, as a fan, as a person who follows sports, and you can derive that from athletes and following teams, and apply it in whatever ways you want in your own life, whatever ways you want to try and be better. That's something I talk about a lot on the show, and it's something that I think is really important to the experience of being a fan and following stuff closely. Just oh, I can glean things from watching Roger Federer's career that maybe somehow I can apply within my own professional career or my own. Amateur athletic pursuits or my own relationships, strangely. Just there's a lot of things that I think you can take from this journey, this experience. You know, the measurement of time and joy through sports. I mentioned that earlier, but it's a really big component to how I consume this world. Not just sports, but everything. But really, really, really sports because it's one of the very important uh, joyful endeavors within my own life. I mentioned David Foster Wallace's essay. And I want to read just a paragraph from that because he writes from the perspective of a fan and just the experience of watching one of the very best athletes that has ever existed. And when I read his stuff about Roger Federer, it's awesome writing because he's an awesome writer, but it also kind of echoes and makes me think of the other athletes that I really feel this for that I'll get to here in a second. So this comes from David Foster Wallace. Again, this is from an essay that was written over a decade ago now, but I think holds up well, incredibly well in present day. Uh, Here we go. The metaphysical explanation is that Roger Federer is one of those rare preternatural athletes who appears to be exempt, at least in part, from certain physical laws. Good analogs here include Michael Jordan, who could not only jump inhumanly high, but actually hang there a beat or two longer than gravity allows, and Muhammad Ali, who really could float across the canvas and land two or three jabs in the clock time required for one. There are probably a half dozen other examples since 1960, and Federer is of this type, a type that one could call genius or mutant or avatar. He is never hurried or off balance. The approaching ball hangs, for him, a split second longer than it ought to. His movements are life rather than athletic. Like Ali, Jordan, Maradona, and Gretzky, he seems both less and more substantial than the men he faces. Particularly in the all-white that Wimbledon enjoys getting away with still requiring, he looks like what he may well, I think, be. A creature whose body is both flesh and somehow light. That's a really good writer, putting into terms just (laughs) watching one of the very best athletes in a sport that they care deeply about makes me think of the two athletes that I've followed from beginning to now, which is pretty close to the end, Aaron Rodgers and LeBron James. And this retirement stuff with Roger Federer, it resonates with me because I'm very aware that both of these two athletes, Rodgers and, and LeBron, have relatively little time left in their careers two careers that have brought me an immense amount of joy and shared community and memory, just all those tracking components and uh, emotional experiences that are tied into fandom. Uh, just that feeling of watching Rogers or LeBron and being like, Oh, there's something not human about what is occurring here. And it's pretty sweet to watch. And it's even cooler because I can talk about Aaron Rodgers back at Cal <laughs> as a quarterback there under Jeff Tedford much less when he got drafted by my favorite team and sat there for a handful of years and then became the starter and I've watched every single meaningful snap and the same thing with LeBron where I'm watching him at Akron St. Vincent St. Mary's at ESPN and ESPN 2 when he's in high school just like oh this guy seems pretty cool and then he's in the NBA and I'm like all right here we go watching every meaningful moment of his entire career for almost two decades now now those two are Getting into the Federer point of time, which is just you cannot hold off age as an individual forever. I would say both of these have done an incredible job of defying that for a very long time, especially LeBron, but you just can't do it forever. You know, it's even going to come home to roost for Tom Brady at some point. Following a team versus an athlete, there's a ton of similarities, but in this way, It's a different experience in this very specific way. Uh, Following a team, it kind of offers that opportunity for rebirth. That tracing the arc of an athlete, it just can't allow because their career must end. You can't go on playing professional sports forever if you are one individual person. A team, that's a different story. You'll have arcs of core components of a team, and that'll phase out over time. Oh, this was the Brett Favre and this was the Aaron Rodgers era, and this was Cleveland Cavaliers, LeBron James, and then this was him with Kyrie Irving, and oh, now if you're a Cavs fan, now you're going, there's Mitchell and Garland and Evan Mobley. There's, There's always opportunity for starting anew and building something up. So that leads us into the discussion about My favorite college football team. Nebraska, a team that is once again searching for a head football coach. Fired Scott Frost less than a week ago. They've gone through a decent amount of iterations post Tom Osborne in 1997 when he retired as one of the most successful coaches in the history of college football. 25-year career at Nebraska, three national titles. And since then, there's been Five coaches at Nebraska, The whoever is hired will be the sixth. After Osborne, there was kind of, if you trace each individual one, very different approaches to try and at first continue, and then after a while to rebuild a winning football program. Frank Solich, who was right after Osborne, he was the natural segue. Just a, pers- a long-time assistant on Nebraska, played at Nebraska person who's going to know the ins and outs. You just, okay, here you go. Turn it right on over. You're very well versed in the culture of this program, what we are, what we want to be. Osborne's handpicked successor. And that slowly, at first it was fine. It was great, you know, and then by 2003, it was like, ah, standards have fallen. We're not winning national titles every year. And so soldiers got to go. And so they do a hard right turn and they go, let's try something new. We've had this. Same offensive system, the same way of playing football. It starts in the trenches. We don't have to recruit at the highest level because we have this incredible development hub. Get these linemen in here. We'll turn them into All-Americans. We'll send them to the NFL. We'll get great eyebacks. We'll get option quarterbacks. We'll get these playmakers on defense. We can develop, 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 develop. Through that, we can always just win. That's what they've done since 1970. Instead, they brought in Bill Callahan from the Raiders, West Coast offense announced so a system overhaul. He's preaching, no, we're going to recruit talent like Nebraska's never seen. It kind of does, to his credit, you know. And then 2007, the shit hits the fan. It's just a complete disaster. So let's get the up-and-coming assistant. Bo Polini, try a new thing. You know, the foundation hasn't been working. The defense was just a complete tire fire. So Pelini, defensive coordinator, formerly Nebraska, had great success. Went to LSU. National title defense in 2007 as defensive coordinator. He's going to come and resurrect the black shirts. And at first we thought he did. 2009 Nebraska defense, literally the best in the nation. And Dominican Sue, that whole unit just one second away from defeating Texas in the Big 12 championship game. Texas goes on to play for the national title. And when they win that game 13-12 on a Hunter Lawrence Vogel, the buzzer, Nebraska goes on. Just pounds the shit out of Arizona in the Holiday Bowl that year. Nick Foles, NFL quarterback, he's there for Arizona. And they just, they can't move the ball two yards. Seemed like Nebraska's back on the rise. You know, that opportunity for rebirth. Just like, okay, yeah, they're gonna, uh, this is, they're turning the corner. Then we found out, uh, maybe that's not true. <laughs> the offense never could really, he just, plainly couldn't find a way make that side of the ball work the defense slowly declined from the start until the end nebraska could never find a way to be competitive against the very best teams on their schedule they get beat by 30 and 40 points every single time so on the one hand they're winning nine or 10 games every single year he's there on the other hand they're losing four games and not in competitive fashion especially the last handful of years that pliny was there and he's crusty as hell and he's angry and so they fire him because he's rude and he doesn't represent nebraska values which i always laugh at and go i don't even know what that means just get somebody who wins at football and we'll go from there. I don't care. I don't even know what Nebraska values means. I don't know what values are in general. I don't even know what that means. Well, they hire Mike Riley, the retread, the nice guy. Another hard right turn who promises, you know, this is this version of the rebirth. We're, we're going to, okay, we can recruit, but just doesn't really have a vision from the get-go it was a very bizarre hiring. The moment it happened, as soon as I saw the news, my heart sinks. I'm like, okay, great. I got to wait for at least three years for this guy to get fired. There's 0% chance this will work. I'm so confident in this. And that's how it played out. That one I did see correctly, which segued into the one I did not see correctly, Scott Frost, the coach who, if you're looking at it in a full circle way, it was kind of supposed to encompass all of those things. Back to the Osborne foundation, cultural foundation of like, okay, football starts in the trenches, walk-on program, develop talent. It's also supposed to encompass all of the more modernized things that college football really needs that Nebraska, in a lot of ways, had been lacking, which was we need more talent. Okay, great. Everybody always needs more talent. That's just an endless pursuit in the sport of college football. Maybe we need a more modernized system. We need a, just kind of a, a more modern way of looking at football. You know, there's name, image, and likeness and stuff coming in, and, and rules are changing. And now, temple's a big thing. And, we're also within the Big Ten West in this conference that plays a different style of football than that. And it's more big, burly man ball. And that's more tied into the past. He's supposed to tie up all of these things. He's coming from the Chip Kelly coaching tree. Modern, fast-paced, tempo, offensive football. But also understands the importance of defense and walk-ons and development and all that kind of stuff. Made so much sense. I thought it was a home run hire. I think everybody did. It was the literal opposite of a home run hire. It was three... Swings on three balls that were not even in the strike zone. They were thrown ten feet over his head, and he was still swinging. And he's fired this week. All these people eventually were not the answer. So now we're back. On one hand, it's incredibly depressing. But if I'm looking for the more optimistic side, and especially with that Roger Federer news kind of percolating in my mind, and just my thoughts on watching another season of Aaron Rodgers and LeBron James, and the fact that those very (laughs) those do not exist very long, the opportunity to do that. I go, okay, there is an opportunity that exists within college football that you just can't get watching an individual athlete. Because this sport, I mean, there's a constant churn, just the nature of it reads that. It's a four-year cycle where all your players technically should be gone. So at that point, you start getting into, okay, well, this is a question for everybody, but it's also a question for Nebraska because they haven't done it in 25 years. You kind of get into the questions about building a culture, building this foundation, how do you do that in present day college football? What things need to happen in the short term? What things need to happen in the long term? And kind of this conundrum that Nebraska has fallen into and I think a lot of programs fall into because patience is at an all-time low within coaching in general in present day. And everybody comes in with their vision. All of those coaches I just mentioned, Solich, Callahan, Pelini, Riley Frost, all every single one of them come in and they go, "Okay, going to have to have patience because we've been dog shit and You know, a lot of players left because they were tied in the prior coaching staff. So you got to give me time and here's the vision and what's going to happen. It always makes sense. You go, okay. And then year one and year two happen. And as soon as the losses start happening, and especially the embarrassing losses, which inevitably will happen because Nebraska is no better than anybody on their schedule ever. Panic sets in, the news starts tightening around the neck of the head coach, and then all of these long-term proposals and ideas and the things that will be sustainable that will allow a program to ascend to these 25-year heights that Tom Osborne was able to ascend to, out the window. And now we go, okay, that's cool. We, we can get to that, but we got to patchwork things year by year, starting right now. Hit the transfer portal. Uh, sign a lot of questionable people coming in in next recruiting class just that maybe are probably going to leave, but maybe they can be an influx town. Let's just don't worry about that. Don't worry about people staying in the program. A lot of stuff that we saw Nebraska fall short on, especially during the frost era. To the point where it was just it has been a complete tire fire. To the point I'm I'm actually not sure if people fully comprehend. Even people within the program and the people that follow Nebraska closely, I'll talk with them and like there's a disconnect between how bad Nebraska is And what people think of them that I find to be incredibly strange. It's something I've been preaching for many years. Where everybody goes, well, we, we got Wisconsin and Iowa. Maybe we can split those games. And I'm going, stop thinking about those teams. Stop thinking about Ohio State and Michigan and Iowa and Wisconsin. Those are not your peers. Your peers are Northwestern and Illinois, and Rutgers. They are the dregs of the Big Ten. I get that. That is embarrassing. Those are the teams that are currently your peers. They are the teams that it seems like you split every other year with. Northwestern has already beat this year. I assume Illinois will beat them. I think they're a better football team. Rutgers, it will be a toss-up. I was reading an article. I've read 3 million articles about this within the last week, and I'm going to talk about three of them. But I was reading an article from Adam Rittenberg on Nebraska, who was kind of talking about this cultural problem and just... Uh, the ways that Nebraska has fallen short. He had a stat within his thing that even to me, I just kind of went, that matches up, but holy shit, that's crazy. Since 2016, Nebraska ranks 105th nationally in win percentage. That is one spot behind the Duke Blue Devils and two spots behind Florida International. That is a true stat. That is since 2016. We are in 2022. So we're talking about the Riley era and the Frost era. Nebraska is inferior to the Duke Blue Devils and the Florida International <laughs> Beavises. I mean, but that, that matches up when you watch this team play. This is another thing that from Rittenberg that I really liked, that I think is a good talking point and worthy of further exploration. The most infuriating part about Nebraska's odyssey is that so many of the traits baked into the Devaney and Osborne teams, player development, disciplined play, Relentless rushing offense and winning the line of scrimmage are exactly what works in the Big Ten, end quote. I hadn't, well, I had thought about it, but there's, I just think so deeply about Nebraska for so long that I just kind of get lost in this endless cycle of what's gone wrong and kind of do forget just simple truths like that. Like, yeah, that is very weird that the things that Nebraska always used to use to work would work very well within their own division, which is where you should start. You don't start by saying, we want, how, how can we mimic Alabama? You are light years away from Alabama. You'll never be Alabama. That's, it's just, it's a different sport. So, at that point, you look at your peers and you go, we need to be better than Rutgers and Illinois and Northwestern. How? And if you can do that, you probably are tapping into that formula within the Big Ten West player development, discipline play, relentless rushing, winning line of scrimmage. The rushing thing, you can take it or leave it. I, I, I mean, I get it. Teams do that very successfully, especially a team like Wisconsin. But the player development, the discipline play, and winning line of scrimmage, those are the three that I just go, well, yes. Those will always, always, always be components of winning football. They just will. Things that Nebraska does not and has not had for a long time. I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about Nebraska's turnover margin, which has been abysmal, but it spanned all these different coaching And They're talking about how since 2011, this is over a decade, Nebraska has had a positive turnover margin once in a year. Again, this is spanning three different coaching styles. It's stuff like that that's just, it's almost hard to comprehend. It's tied into player development. It's tied into the fact that they cannot develop lines, but it's also just tied into this component of coaching that a person like me can't define because I'm not a coach and I'm not there in practice. But you just, you know it when you see it. It's probably the best way of putting it. And you go, just go watch Bill Belichick's Patriots teams. They're disciplined because their coaches instill this in them through practice. Whatever you need to do to get to that point, that's what you should do. There's a lot of college football teams that don't turn the ball over three times a game. There's a lot of college football teams that don't commit 10 penalties a game. Nebraska has made a habit of doing that for a decade. That's something that needs to change. That's part of coaching. So stars matter. That's a big, big talking point in college football. I am in that camp. As it pertains to winning a national title, recruiting stars, get five stars and four stars, you have to stock your... Roster up with that talent. Absolutely true. No doubt about it. That is a problem for down the road for Nebraska. It is not a current problem. Because stars matter at the highest level. To win a national title, you need to supplement that with coaching. If you're not talking about the 10 best teams in America, stars matter infinitely less than coaching. So for a team like Nebraska, for, again... 120 fps teams that aren't the top 10 you go what is more important out of these two things that we got to talk about how well we're going to recruit and drive all over and we're going to get all these five stars and four stars is that realistic no it's not so at that point you go we need coaching (laughs) we need a coach and a coaching staff that knows how to coach and develop players that's pretty basic truth about football Look right within the division. I mentioned Iowa Wisconsin. I mean, these are two great examples. Iowa is the complete, abysmal, absolute shits on offense. I don't know how they have sunk this low. They are currently last in the nation in yards per play. They are so bad on that side of the ball, but they have an incredible track record, especially defensively in special teams, but also offensively in their own warped, bastardized way of like, we just get people and we can develop them and we always have a good, disciplined football team. Eric Ferentz has had a 20-year career doing that. Wisconsin's the same thing, whether that's Paul Crist or Brett Bielema or back to Barry Alvarez. I mean, it's just they're never in the top 15 of the recruiting rankings. And these are two consistent top 25 programs that are winning the Big Ten West and going to major bowls and winning double digit games and all the things that Nebraska should be killing themselves for. So, Max Olson, he writes for the athletic. He's tuned in deeply with the Nebraska program. He wrote an article about just kind of the the things that are needed to run a successful Midwestern football program and a lot of the ways that Nebraska had fallen short in those areas. Now, I want to read some paragraphs from him because there's been a weird aspect of Nebraska, and this is tied more into the modern college football game, just like Nebraska has been able to actually technically get talent there, but not necessarily retain it. That's two different things. And the retention part has not been that big of a deal in the past because we haven't had these Wild West transfer portal rules and the ways that players can move freely in a way they could not in the past. So here we go with Max Olson. You can choose to dissect any number of problems that contributed to a 16 and 31 run and a can't-miss hire failing to work out. It's never just one thing. But when a program recruits at a top 20 level and win games at a bottom 20 level, it eventually becomes clear that something important is missing. Nebraska is struggling in the areas that define successful Midwestern programs, talent evaluation, development, and retention. That third one is becoming more essential every year. The Huskers have experienced too much attrition over the past four years and are paying the price for it this season. During the Frost era, Nebraska has lost 56 scholarship players to the transfer portal, second most in the Big Ten. But here's the real issue. 40 of those departures came from players in the staff's first three recruiting classes. Among those 56 scholarship players who transferred out, 45 stayed in the program for two years or less. 19 were gone by the end of their first year in the program. He continues, but it's hard to establish quality depth when you have too many misses. Nebraska's class average under Frost ranked 19th best nationally. There isn't another Big Ten West program in that top 25. And the staff achieved that despite annual losing records. Whether they were pursuing the right type of players to build those top 20 classes is its own debate. But once you get them to campus, how do you get them to stay and succeed? End quote. It's kind of an interesting conundrum that, again, is tied specifically to modern college football. But talent retention is now turning to this huge thing. That was something I was noticing very early, dating back to kind of even the Mike Riley era. Just They were signing these classes that, oh, this is sweet. They're top 20 and look at this receiver we got from California and this lineman we got from Texas and this linebacker we got from Florida. And a year later, out of the 10 highest rated people we signed, eight of them would be gone. And that just continued and continued and continued and continued to the point where every signing day would arrive and Nebraska would have a top 20 class and let's high five everybody. And I would go, this doesn't mean anything. The Athletic did a study about this kind of these rolling four-year windows, looking back upon what was your class actually at? They did this amongst Power 5 programs. And the last one that they did, because of this talent retention problem with Nebraska, Nebraska was dead last in actual recruiting rankings for what occurred on the field because of this. Just, oh yeah, well, you had top 20 classes every time. None of them really played. They all left. So then you're patchworking together year by year. This, This problem that I mentioned earlier. Something that should be building up talent. That's a really solid foundation to start with, but you need to keep that talent. And so if you're not, then it's just a year-by-year problem. It's patchwork, it's patchwork, it's patchwork, it's patchwork. A lot of college football teams are running into that specific problem. It's not Nebraska-specific. And also, to kind of expand the scope beyond this Midwestern program thing that Max Olson was talking about, Like, this is an issue for a lot of teams, And the ways that you can win at football are tied into stuff that don't necessarily have to be recruiting. It has to do with development, coaching, and then of the talent that you do get, it's about retention. Max Olson mentions just kind of during the Scott Frost era. A bunch of different teams have kind of won eight plus games in a season at least once. And he's just like, I mean, we're talking, actually, I'll read these list. These Midwestern schools, this is during the Scott Frost era. Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, Cincy, Wisconsin, Iowa, Iowa State, Kansas State, Minnesota, Indiana, Michigan State, Missouri, Northwestern, Purdue. I mean, we're talking about really good teams all the way down to teams that you're just like, well, that's not a very good team. But they're finding more success than this program that has no reason or excuse to not at the very least be mimicking the success of some of the teams in that list, starting from Cincinnati on. Ohio State and Michigan, they're in their own category so far. Notre Dame is as well, but actually Cincinnati is too, the way that they played under fickle, but you get the point. So that leads into I talked about the individual athletes at the start. Talked about how rewarding that process is, how it's kind of uncomfortable because it can mimic the way that life is, just growth and decay and death in a kind of a morbid way at least for an athlete it's your career is over it's not actual death but that is what happens in real life you know one day you're gonna die one day i'm gonna die the gift that's offered from following a team is that you can always go back to the beginning and in this instance for nebraska and for a lot of teams i would say you get back to the beginning and yes you've been complete horseshit for so long and maybe that will continue for all of time In my more depressed Nebraska fan days, I I think that way. And in my other days, I go, ah, you're always a coach away. That is something that I firmly, firmly, firmly believe. We've seen it everywhere for all of time. It is so important within the sport of football at any level. It is so freaking important at the college football level where you have a constant churn. But if you have a coach that is there throughout these four-year cycles, four-year cycles, four-year cycles, You can build something that is sustainable, that players come and go. But this culture, this way to play football, this way to win eight games a year or 10 games a year or contend for a divisional title or a conference title or a national title, it remains the same. No matter how grim things get, no matter how distant winning seems to be for Nebraska or for anybody else, this will always remain true. I mean, Alabama, Crimson Tide, they've dominated college football for 15 years, but They didn't win for a decade plus before Saban arrived. They were in the coaching wilderness. I mean, the Patriots never won a Super Bowl until Bill Belichick arrived. They were just kind of stumbling around, bumbling around. This rudderless NFL team that, for the most part, throughout the franchise history was kind of a laughingstock. And then Belichick arrived and Saban arrived. And the next thing we know, we have two decades of just complete dominance. You're always a coach away. Saban and Alabama. They do have built-in recruiting advantages that not a lot of programs have. But even taking that away, you're always a coach away from building a really good, sustainable, competitive football team. Maybe you won't win national titles every year, but I'm pretty sure if you took 120 teams in America and said this coach is going to be around for 20 years and they're going to play top 25 football and they're going to be competitive and they're not going to get their ass handed to them by these good teams, they're going to win nine games sometimes and 10 games sometimes and 11 games sometimes. I promise you everybody would sign up for that. I promise you I would sign up for that. <laughs> Speaking of Sabin, I was reading an article from Dennis Dodd who writes for CBS Sports. It was about the Nebraska coaching search, but he had a, a great thing in there about Saban that I'd kind of forgotten that maybe illustrates just, A, you're always a coach away, but B, like there's just luck is always a factor. Great principle of the Chris Rawl show. This is what he says. A turnaround has been possible at Nebraska many times throughout the quarter century since Tom Osborne retired. If there was an obvious process, there wouldn't be the process. Nick Saban's mysterious, ultra effective corporate athletic philosophy. It has often been imitated, but never duplicated. Consider that Alabama faced a similar situation in 2007. Rich Rodriguez, according to substantive reports at the time, had accepted the job. Fortunately for the Crimson Tide, he got cold feet. Saban will go down in history as the world's best ever backup plan. End quote. I actually had forgot that. And as soon as he said, it, I'm like, oh yeah, Rich Rodriguez, who was hot, hot, hot coaching commodity at the time. He was coaching for West Virginia. He was running this up-tempo offense. that was just burning people to the ground. He'd taken this more bound Mountaineers program and they were the talk of college football. And Crimson Tide, they'd been wandering the wilderness. And oh, we haven't been competitive in, since the early 90s, and we need somebody in, and he accepts this job, which everybody thought was a home run hire. He eventually takes the Michigan job, and, which turned out to be one of the worst hires of the last 25 years. And then Saban steps in. It's like, oh, okay, well, there's kind of no looking back there. Great sliding doors moment in the history of college football. And again, if we circle back to Nebraska, it's not realistic to expect the Tom Osborne era. There's a lot of talk about how Nebraska needs to stop living in the past, blah, blah, blah. Yes, everybody agrees with that. I don't think there's anybody arguing against that. I think it's a misnomer that Nebraska fans or people within the program think that is a possibility. I do not think anybody who has a brain believes Nebraska can return to what Alabama currently is, what Nebraska used to be in the mid-90s. Nobody thinks that. So at that point, you go, okay, we have normal expectations. We're in the Big Ten West. Let's try and be the best team in the Big Ten West. Let's go from there. Then you go, okay, that's, that's feasible. You're always a coach away. There's been a lot of people linked to Nebraska's job. I'm sure more will be linked in the next, presumably three months before they hire their coach at the start of December, which is what I'm guessing will happen. But Urban Meyer, yeah, great. Sign me up. Matt Campbell, great. Mark Stoops, incredible culture builder at Kentucky. Coach Chris Kleiman, same thing at North Dakota State and Kansas State. Lance Leipold. Exact same thing. Look what he's doing at Kansas right now and what he did at Buffalo. Look what he did in Division Three, where he won 500 national titles. There's a million more options. There's a lot of people who I think can possibly bring that stuff that Max Olson was talking about. The things that I think are important to building a winning program in the Midwest. Some of the stuff that's really exclusive to the Midwest, especially for Nebraska, that lack of talent within a 500 mile radius that Nebraska just, that's kind of putting them behind the eight ball as far as a talent hub. But at the same time, be the best in the Big Ten West, we're seeing all these teams win and they're not signing top 25 classes, okay, so at that point, it becomes more about talent evaluation, talent development, talent retention, coaching, fundamental principles of coaching, right, and if you get the right person in there, it could be one of those people on that list, your program is transformed, completely transformed, thinking about Nebraska being a 9-3 and team seems like it's in another galaxy, that would be transformational. Nebraska being the best team in the Big Ten West, that'll be transformational. Nebraska being a consistent top twenty-five team, transformational. If you choose the wrong one on this list, as they have done for five coaches now, you will probably follow the same five-year cycle that has swallowed the last twenty-five years. That is the crossroads that the Nebraska Cornhuskers football program is at, and it's not exclusive to them. There's a lot of other teams that just you can wander the wilderness for quite some time. Tennessee would be a good example, actually. A team with a very proud history that kind of has mirrored nebraska's fall from grace and they're hoping josh heupel's the one maybe he is maybe he's not but i'll I'll wrap up the show just by kind of circling back to where we started and where we are think of that circle in some ways life can offer that in other ways it can't so on a day where one of the greatest athletes in their sport announces their retirement we're not getting that back we're not watching roger federer play tennis again In the near future, I'm not going to watch Aaron Rodgers play football or LeBron James play basketball. That's very sad. But in the team following side, I can look at Nebraska's search right now a little bit more optimistically than maybe I was a few days ago because I'm thinking about that mortality component of individuals and it doesn't have to be applied to being a fan of a team because college football, college football is the definition of rebirth in a strange way. It's every year you got a new team. It's especially every four years where you really have a new team. It's every coaching change. It's that continual opportunity to prove that you are not chained to your past, that you can be something different. Uh, and in Nebraska's case, it's a continual opportunity to prove that with work, with development, and most importantly, with coaching, with good coaching. You can always be better in the future. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. I wrote about Justin Herbert this week. You can go and read that at chrisrawl.com under the newsletter tab. If you do not sign up for my newsletter, uh, you probably should. You can also be accessed in that exact same location. You can read anything that I've written in the past about Iowa punting and Nebraska being a tire fire and all the things that I like to talk about. The Avalanche winning Stanley Cup, that's a happy one. <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom here. So thank you for listening. We have another incredible weekend of football in store. I'll be back on Tuesday to talk about the margins of college football and the NFL. Thanks again and peace.